My grief is real. My grieving is not strange. I am not wildly crazy for experiencing my grieving in this way. I hope that you feel mysteriously that we are witnesses to your grief. Hey family, I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely, but you are not alone. Let's jump in. Well, hey there, family. We are here. Yes, we are both here. I am Coach Steph, and I am with Dr. Angela, aka my younger sister and also co-host. And Angela, I declare today is going to be a good day. I think every good day starts with an intention like that. So I think that's beautiful. And I am with you. Today is going to be a, a good day. Yes. Absolutely. My first question for you is, how are you feeling about me starting off the interview process? with you first. <laughs> oh, yeah, because that's what this episode is all about. Today, friends, we are interviewing each other. So I I feel a couple of things. One, I feel a little bit nervous. You know, we're talking, we're sharing a lot about our lives. But two, I feel acceptance because as my elder sister, you just sort of declared this is what's going to happen to you you're going first. And, you know, I think throughout life, you just accept like my older sister said it. So we got to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely want to get it out of the way as well. And just let everybody know that you are the smarter sister. (laughs) That is, that is not true, but I, I appreciate that you were, you know, are saying something very kind about me, but but we're all smart in our own way. (laughs) Okay. I'll take that. Now, in all seriousness, Angela, you, I mean, goodness gracious, you have spoken all over the world. You just got back from Germany. You've been a guest on numerous podcasts. You've written two successful books, Always On and The Gravity of Joy. You have taught at prestigious universities. You have your PhD. You're also a reverend and have spoken at, I don't know how many churches I could go on and on. But honestly, what fascinates me the most about you is that you read more books at one time than anyone I know. And you've read more books probably than anyone I know as well. And so my first question for you is how many books are you currently reading or listening to right now? And (laughs) why are you so passionate or what drives you to do that? Yeah. Well, first of all, your introduction made me sound both always busy, very busy (laughs) and like a super nerd, which is actually accurate. Both things are accurate. I'm a super nerd who is quite busy. I and we will come back to that when we talk about grief in a little bit and our own grieving, like how we deal with it. Mm, I didn't even thought about that till just now. But I am currently reading seven books, seven seven books. I have three on my nightstand, the new book, The Home of God by Mirosav Wolf and Ryan McAnally-Lins, both good friends of mine who I work with at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. 
part-time. I used to work with them full-time. I've got Boundaries by Melissa Urban, her newest book, and The Wisdom Way of Knowing, an older book by Cynthia Bourgeau. And then I'm listening to four-ish books on Audible, maybe more, but definitely four at least. And I'll just highlight one that's The Grieving Brain, which our Facebook book club and support group, The Grief Sisters Book Club, is reading together this month. Yes, we are. And I've, I've yet to start it, but I promise I'll start it soon. <laughs> <laughs> Get on that. Get on that. Well, now, Coach Steph, my older sister, my older, wiser sister, <laughs> it's time for me to tell the world about you. You have owned your own businesses. You've been a dental hygienist, a middle school teacher, and a coach for tons of people across multiple industries. Everything from fitness to health and wellness and life coaching. You've helped hundreds of people overcome hurdles in their life, have illuminations, work through their past, and I think live toward the future that they've always wanted for themselves, which mm. is a beautiful thing. Mm. I'd love, my, my first question for you is how do you put all of that together to say like, in, what's the thing that ties all of that together for you? Because some people might be listening and thinking, wow, that's, you know, a lot of different kinds of jobs, you know, a lot of different things that she's done in her life, especially because she's 21, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. At exactly. 21, you've done so much. <laughs> We're just kidding, people. Exactly. Kidding. Yeah. So what, what, when you think about the thing that wakes you up each day, that makes you come alive, that ties all of this together, what is it? Right, right. Well, you know, as you as you mentioned, all of those things, I, I started feeling pretty old. So <laughs> like, how could I have done all those things? I, I appreciate that you said I was 21. Even though, as you love to say, spoiler alert, Coach Steph is not 21. <laughs> She's 52. And Dr. Angela is going to be 40 in a couple weeks. So yeah, happy uh, birthday early. Yeah. Right. But it's, it really is honestly an interesting question when, whenever I've had to redo or build a resume or something like that, I'm kind of like, wow, all of these things somehow must go together. And I think, you know, for me, it is really putting that coach hat on, like all all I've really done all my life is kind of teach people how to brush their teeth better, teach people about science in sixth grade, or when we owned a gym, I was really teaching people how to do kickboxing. And so I had heard a saying, a couple of sayings a few, many years ago, one is, you know, find a mentor and be a mentor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's always really helped me or really resonated with me, like my personal mantra, so to speak. And, and I, I always feel like there's an intervention, like a godly intervention. That's You and I've talked about this before, like after four or five years, I'm kind of like, Hmm, what's next on the horizon. Yeah. And yeah. If you're open to opportunities, you know, sometimes something can lead you to the next, but it's always been for me kind of that vision of two hands where you've got one hand reaching towards someone and pulling them with you to where you are currently, and then grabbing the hand of someone else to go where you want to go and allowing them to mentor you while you're Mm. mentoring that other person. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the other mantra that I love or mission statement of my life is just leaving people better than I found them. And that's always been an intent that I've had because, you know, you're those people that like, I, I have friends that when you're with them, you're just like, wow, 
like they make me feel so good. And I kind of strive to be that person. So mm-hmm. that someone feels good about themselves or good about what they're doing and always asking people lots of questions about themselves. People love to talk about themselves and I love to hear it. So, well, as your younger sister who also sees myself as your friend, I really feel all of that in my life. I feel like you are an incredible mentor. You're someone who listens really well, who is present to other people when they're going through something. You do help us, you know, people to work through what they've gone through and to imagine what they could be stepping into in their lives. And you really, you have this sort of positivity about you that's really refreshing in a world that can be so gloomy and difficult. You have a really a joyfulness about you that I know you probably feel like grief has in many ways stolen from you over the last almost six years. And yet, like, I still see it. And it's been such a light in my life throughout my life, especially, I think of a couple of years ago, I I called you when I had filed for divorce, and I just needed a a safe haven. And you were the person I was like, can I come stay with you? And you were like, yes, just come, you know, and so for multiple days, I came and sat with you. And I just felt like you're just a no judgment, no shame zone. Like for me, I just don't, I feel like I can just share with you whatever's going on and that you're going to help me work through it. And you did that week, you know, especially. Thanks for that. I know there's hundreds and thousands of people out there who feel the same way about you, you know, since you've spoken all over the world, as I said, and, and just been able to really mentor students at universities. It just makes us feel good, right? It just really makes us, and I think that's what the, one of the big things we have in common is just sort of, I don't know if it's pay it forward, but it's just truly like pouring your heart out. And, and as you say, no judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we do, we, we share, I mean, it, I think at the end of the day, we both are teachers at heart. And for me, like I always try to, I like to be a nurturer of souls. I think it is a way of paying it forward because many people have nurtured mine and been good to me, you know? And so why not? You know, when you can choose in a world, I mean, that's the thing you get up every single day and you have the opportunity to encourage and care about other people and create space for them to be themselves or not. And I think we're just saying, Hey, like you can show up and be yourself with us. Yes. That's so good. I'd love to talk a little bit about our sisterhood and our life growing up as well. We do have an interesting story (laughs) that we do. And I have to share with our listeners that I actually remember when I met you, you know, as you learned a little earlier, we're, we're about 12 years apart. And for those of y'all don't know, we, we are two of four sisters. We all share the same dad, but Angela and our youngest sister, Jenna share the same mom and I share the same mom with our sister, Allison. And so Allison and I used to go visit y'all and dad in particular at first in our summers. I remember visiting dad and I believe you were waiting for us with your mom at the Kentucky Horse Park and your mama had an RV there. And when we rolled up in our cars and we hopped out of the car, you were in one of those little car seats. I think you're about six months old or something like that. You, <laughs> you were the pinkest baby. 
Like you were so pink. You were just the pinkest, roundest baby I had ever seen. And <laughs> not, not only your skin tone, but you had the most obnoxious, ruffly pink dress, I believe it was, and a bonnet. And as like, no offense to your mom at all, because you probably, she had a really good reason, like you were supposed to look really cute and put together that day or something, (laughs) you know, for like a presentation to your sisters and just, I don't know, a family get together or whatever. And so I just remember that was my first, wow, this is your sister. And it's funny how we didn't grow up together necessarily. We spent lots of time together in the summers and on vacations, but it's just like, exciting. Like, yeah, that's my sister. Yes. Well, I don't recall the first time we met <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that I, I didn't have an awareness of shame at that point. Because... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I was probably overheating in my defense <laughs> in that big roughly dress. It could have been an Easter because I do remember, I know that, I know that dress that you're describing. I'm pretty sure I know which one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of myself and uh-huh. that's pretty funny, but Yeah. So I grew up in Eastern Kentucky initially with dad and my mom. And then when they got divorced, moved to central Kentucky in Lexington. I joke with people that our dad had a hobby of getting married. He was really into it. So (laughs) he did it several times. Yeah. Um, He was a lover, not a fighter for sure. (laughs) You know, that is see the spin. I love the spin there. (laughs) And he was, he was a huge, he was a lover. So we, but you grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but we really, you, you came on a regular basis to Kentucky as you were growing up. But then when I got to middle school, it had been a couple of years since we'd seen you all. And then I remember just something that I want to, you know, point out about our sisterhood is that you and Allison were really intentional about cultivating cultivating a relationship with Jenna and I, apart from just, we all have the same dad, but like, you know, and we should all see each other, but you all were like, Hey, we really want to have a relationship with you. And so you flew us out to Albuquerque in middle school. And that's where it really started of just like, we're not just sisters because by blood, but like that we are choosing to be good sisters to one another and to to cultivate friendships with each other. And so I'm really grateful that y'all did that. And, and then even after high school, you all took us on a cruise as like a graduation gifts, which was so cool. Like y'all have just been really, really good, bigger, you know, older sisters that just say, we're going to take care of our younger sisters and we're going to really work to be intentional about our relationship with each other. Yeah, we've had some cool times together. And I think in some ways, maybe that's, that's been sort of the glue for us is we tend to, we tend to get together for really awesome things, right? Like, (laughs) like it's either a holiday or a vacation or a summer get together. And so for the most part, all of our all of our stuff has been surrounded by just lots of great fun. And and as you are now, you're very intentional about getting together with each of us. We're very fortunate to have that relationship, especially because we didn't grow up in the same household. Right, right. All right. So back to business and your next question. And I think this is, you know, really great for our listeners. Obviously, they probably want to hear like why this podcast? Why now? How did it come to be? Angela, you are obviously a very busy person. I'm a very busy person, but can you tell everyone about the day you called me and we decided to work together in this grief space? Yes, because this is this is this is how it all began. <laughs> I saw that you posted on Facebook that the company you were working for was being sold. 
Yeah. And the moment I saw the post, I wondered, well, what is she going to do? Because for the couple of weeks prior to that, I had been having these sorts of like dreams, imagine like my imagination was going wild where I was thinking, wow, okay, I've been working in the grief space for the last few years because of my book, The Gravity of Joy, doing a lot of speaking related to suicide prevention, addiction, like mitigating addiction. And then, but, and then sort of bigger picture than that, and really helping people to become open to joy in the midst of suffering and talking about how joy is possible in suffering, helping people to grieve openly and deeply. We both care so much about helping other people walk through grief because other people have helped us over the last six years. We're passionate about this. And then I see your post and I'm like, okay, what is she going to do now? But, <laughs> you know, and so I called you and I also just wanted to know, how did you feel about this? I was, I was kind of surprised right. that the company had been sold. And, you know, so I guess until it was public knowledge, you couldn't tell anyone. And so I kind of saw it with the, the world and I was like, oh, wow. And so I called you and I was like, how are you? What's, you know, how are you feeling about all of this? Yeah. And yeah, and well, then- I'm going to, I'm going to stop you because my recollection <laughs> is that you called and said, how are you doing? And what are you going to do now? And actually, I really don't care about that at all. I just want to know if you finally want to do the grief thing with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that I did come across as sincerely like caring <laughs> about your feelings because no, I you- did, I did you care did. about, yeah. I cared about what you, yeah, how you were feeling about everything. But I think that you and I, yeah, over the last few years, we've talked a lot about the talks that you've given, you know, about grief and about sharing your own story. And then the more and more that we talked, I realized that you were becoming more passionate about holding space with people while they were grieving. And like, could we do something in the, yeah, could we do something together that would be meaningful and helpful to people? Right. Well, you and I have been talking on and off over the last couple of years, especially with your book coming out and the work that you had done. Like, how could we, you know, make it happen? And we just had to be in the right place at the right time. And as you've said before, it's kind of divine intervention yet again, because Mm -hmm. and because of our story that you'll soon hear more about, you know, we we weren't really ready. I wasn't ready for sure often people would say to me, you know, you should start a grief group or you should this or you should that. And it's just like, what, like, (laughs) what can I offer someone? So it's taken this long to kind of come to that realization. And I think with the major transition that we've had in both of our lives, Mm -hmm. that, and both of us wanting to work even more in the grief space, that it was just absolutely time. Yeah, for me, I'd been thinking about leaving my job, my full time job as a professor, and just focusing on speaking and writing research projects, you know, but then being able to do more of this kind of work with you. And I think when we had that phone call, it just felt like everything had come in, you know, was falling into place, and that this was the time to take a leap. We want to be your sister in grief, and that holding that space for people is so, so important because as you said, and alluded to in 2017, we collectively lost four family members in a seven week time period. And a lot of your book, The Gravity of Joy is about that story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And even to this day, you know, it's we're at we're almost six years from when those weeks started. And to this day, it's still sort of unbelievable to me that it happened, <laughs> even though I talk about it all the time. It began those seven weeks of hell began for us when it started with me. Each so its book ended, we have mutual family members in the middle. Uh, so we had four family members die, and then the two in the middle we hold in common, and then the two that are bookended, one is mine, one of my family members, and the other one was one of yours. So the weeks started with one of my family members dying at 30 years old by suicide. And when I got that call, I was in a church parking lot, mysteriously. I had been hanging out with teenagers in the basement of the church as a youth volunteer youth leader. We had sung Christmas carols at a nursing home or a couple of different assisted living homes, excuse me. That afternoon, we were playing games in the basement, just celebrating Christmas. It was a time of Christmas joy. I walked out to my car, grabbed my, I had left my cell phone in the car just to be able to be present to the youth and to Christmas that day. And I found seven on my phone. When I grabbed my phone, I realized I had seven missed calls from my mom. And nobody ever wants to find seven missed calls from their mother. (laughs) You know, right away, like something very terrible has happened. And when I called her and she told me what had happened, my immediate reaction, like it was a gut level visceral reaction, was to scream no and to just wail in the parking lot. I immediately fell to my knees and just was weeping on the concrete. I have never, no moment has ever quite been like that moment because I think there is something about suicide that is so gut-wrenching. Yeah. It is just because you cannot believe that someone you care about thought that that was the best way to find relief. You know, it just, it's like now I can, I have a lot more understanding and we'll get to that in other episodes. Like I have a deeper, deeper understanding of why people die by suicide. I've done a lot of work trying to understand that, trying to help other people understand that. I have so much compassion for anyone who dies by suicide. And I use that language incredibly intentionally. It's very important to me that no one says committed suicide because that doesn't create space for the pain the person was going through. It doesn't leave room for compassion, whereas die by suicide does. And I really am passionate about using that language. So that set me up for the worst week of my life to that point. That week was awful. I mean, it was horrifying on every level. I have never, until that week, I had never cried that much. Like, I didn't think it was possible to cry that much. Mm. And I remember getting back to New Haven, Connecticut, where I lived at the time. I was working at Yale and I was studying joy. My job was to literally study and investigate joy. I was working on the joy project. And I remember thinking simultaneously, like, study joy. What? And two, like, how will our family ever, ever recover from this? Right. And then a few days later, after getting back, like within a week 
of getting home-ish, like a week, maybe a week and four days, I think, of getting back from Dustin's funeral, Jenna calls me. And she tells me, through tears, I, I was on the freeway. She called me. I'd missed her call. I called her back within a few minutes because I'd had my phone on silent. And she says, Angela, like, I have to tell you something hard. You know, a version of that. Are you in a place where I can tell you something hard? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just, just in the car on the freeway. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and she's like, Steph's, Steph's son died. Mason died. And I'm like, what? What? And I remember just being like, what? And she's like, I know, no, I don't know. I don't really know all the details. I don't know why. I don't know like what happened exactly. But like, yeah, I just, I, I knew I had to tell you. And, you know, we finished the call and I knew that I needed to call you. When I got home, I called you and we talked. But I'll, I'll let you say more about that. <laughs> Mason, we think, passed away January 2nd. And I did not find out until the morning of January 6th. Obviously, lots of that week is very blurry. And still to this day, is such a blur. I'm, I'm actually glad that I started journaling so that I can go back and kind of, or I started journaling at the time. Unexpectedly, I'm not really a journaler, but Mason was living in Utah and he was actually doing amazing. He was 22 years old. He had moved there a couple of years before that. He had met a friend online. He was kind of a gamer and actually had YouTube videos about gaming and he had met a guy through the gaming space and um, this buddy of his was like, move out to Salt Lake City. It's fun out here. There's lots of work and young people and cute girls, whatever the case was, lure them out there. And and so he made it happen. He was always my kid that I worried about because he would he'd have to do it wrong before he did it right. <laughs> and <laughs> And, and, and then he would finally figure it out. And, and so for him to move away and make it happen and make it work for a couple of years. And he really, he called me one day and said, mom, it's about a month before he, he passed away actually and said, mom, I just got my dream job. And he, he called it like his big boy job, you know, with benefits. And I was really lucky. He called and texted me often. We were pretty close, closer probably than maybe we were through his teenage years. And so when I hadn't heard from him in a couple of days and I had texted him for a couple of days, I knew that something was wrong. Yeah, like in your gut as a mom, because I think I remember you saying, Steph, that you had actually talked to him on January 2nd. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, it, it might have been. It might have been the first okay. like New Year's Day. New Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, what did you do last night? I was actually supposed to go and see him and and we didn't because there it was pretty there was a lot of storms and stuff. And and he was like, wait and come and see me after, you know, I get organized with my job and and that sort of thing. And so mm -hmm. But you all talked on the first and then you texted him on the second and he didn't respond to you right away, but over the next and then you didn't think much of it initially. And then over the next couple of days, when he wasn't responding, you, you looked at your Find My Phone app that you had with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you know, even I was that helicopter mom that still, because he lived in another state, I'm like, just share your location with me. 
just so I can have that. And so I, I saw on his location that he was at home and I just thought he's hunkered down playing games or something and not going to work because of the weather. And, and I was about the fifth that Thursday, I think it was that I really thought like, if I don't hear from him by tomorrow, I'm going to call his landlord. I knew his landlord through various reasons and had access to her phone number, probably that helicopter mom thing, but you know, there's reasons for that. And so well, the fact that he allowed you, you have to give someone permission to be able to see where your phone is. Sure. The fact that he trusted you, I mean, that's, that really demonstrates how close your relationship was. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That morning I, I called, I called the landlord and she said she was actually concerned as well because he hadn't paid his rent and he was never late. And so she called me back and said she was at his door and that it was the policy to call the police if they weren't answering. And so that next phone call was was a police officer telling me that he'd been found and that he mm. he was in front of his gaming computer and and no longer living and and just <laughs> I, I remember exactly where I was, you know, yeah, and what chair I was in and that I fell to my knees. Yeah. And I know that we're going to talk about his story in another episode and, and about what it's like losing a child. But I can tell you without a doubt, my life was forever changed. It was pretty quickly after that, that someone must have let you know because you called me. Yeah, I think I think you called Allie. You called Allison? Or yeah, I I, I may yeah. yeah, I may have uh, to be honest with you, I I don't know if I called her or my mom first. Yeah. So one of you so somehow Allison found out whether through your mom or through you and then Allison called Jenna and then Jenna called me and then I called you. <laughs> yeah. So it was like this chain of events that happened pretty quickly. And I think it's important for us to say that Mason did not die of any foul play. There was no strange things like, you know, substances found in his body, nothing like that. He had a heart condition that we did not know about. And he died of sudden cardiac arrest. Right. So that's right. an important, well, we will, we're going to come back. We're going to have a different episode that's dedicated to just the grief that follows the loss of a child and the ways that Steph has navigated life over the last almost six years. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll come back to that. But Steph, I remember us talking and I asked if I could pray for you over the phone. You, you said I could. I asked if you wanted me to come. I said, Jenna and I were both willing to come. And you were just like, yes, come. And so we, we got off the phone. And I remember I was talking to you on the balcony of my apartment in New Haven. And then I went to my bed and I laid on my bed and wept. <laughs> just, yeah. I just cried for, I don't know. I don't know how long, but I just laid in my bed and cried. And then after I could pull myself together, called Jenna and we talked through flights and we planned to come and to visit you and Allison and Natalie and everyone who loves Mason. And we spent several days with you. We will also talk about that in the future on this podcast. We had Mason's 
service on a Saturday, Gemma and I returned to our homes. She lived in Cincinnati at the time on a Sunday. And again, I remember getting back to my home in New Haven and just thinking, how will our family get on the road to healing from this? I mean, like, what does healing even look like after the tragedy of these three weeks? Just heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And two nights later, got a message that our dad was in the emergency room fighting for his life. And I, I remember very, very clearly Like, this is a clear thing in my mind. I literally said to myself, dad is not dying this week. (laughs) Yeah, He's he's not dying. It was like, because I just thought I am so empty. Like, I don't have anything left. I have no tears left. I have nothing. I am totally empty. I'm exhausted. I haven't slept in weeks. And... I just well, just simply like we can't take it. Like no, like yeah, it's like, like no, absolutely no. not. I'm putting, <laughs> I'm putting my foot down. Yeah, this is not. <laughs> this is you know, this is where grief gets silly and crazy. Where you just right. literally start saying things that are you know, you're like, uh, yeah, no, yeah. So I said no. I I said no, and I went to bed. I didn't respond to the message. I didn't call anybody. I literally went to sleep because. It was, I, I think I like couldn't deal with it. I didn't have, I, I mean, I was at the end of myself, you know, I couldn't even conceptualize that as being a possibility. And so the next morning I was teaching for the first time at Yale and I had been there for almost a year, but they gave me the full semester just to do the research project. But I was actually teaching my first class of undergrads. <laughs> a class called Life Worth Living. And I just like went to the class and I just taught it and introduced it, the whole concept, walked through the syllabus, like the way, you know, as if nothing had happened because I couldn't, I knew that if I even like went there for a second with those young people, like I would fall apart and be on the floor. So it's just like, I'm just going to teach as if like nothing has happened in the last three and a half weeks, as if our dad's not in the ER. And just, I casually mentioned to my students at the end of class, my my dad is in the hospital, so if I miss the next class, like I'm, you know, I'm probably tending to that family situation, mm-hmm. and I left it at that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you heard that dad was in the ER? I can't even imagine, because that's the thing. Our, our like I love Mason, and but like your grief was different than mine, right? Sure, as sure. Shannon versus a mom, and so if I was like no. And I just shut down. Like, I can't even imagine. I mean, I don't know what you were thinking. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to say as well that this is not the first time that our dad had been right. in the hospital. So we, have, right. we yeah. have been told before when he was in the hospital, because our dad, as you will learn in a future episode, had been sick for a long time. So I think you called me and just said, listen, dad's in the hospital and we're going to have to go, I think and see him. And I just thought to myself, okay, well, he's, he's gonna, he's got, dad's got nine lives or 10 or 12. I don't know. Like this is another, he's going to be very sick, but he's been sick for a long time. And so I don't think I could even fathom that he was going to pass away. And I, 
I actually remember that week going to school. I was a school teacher and I went back to school to teach pretty quick, three weeks after Mason passed away. And it was because, because my daughter was going to school across the street at the high school. I was at a Christian school and it was a support system for me. And I felt like I needed normalcy and actually those kids ended up saving me. So the reason I mentioned that is because I was kind of busy at that time too, and then would just come home and crash. And so it had just been a day or two that I had kind of worked my way back. I believe it was a, after you decided to go that you were at the hospital and called me and said, you need to say your goodbyes. And I remember you had to call me two or three times in a row because I was probably asleep. Yeah. Because that's what you do when you're grieving. You wake up and do the things you have to, and then you sleep. I think it's important for us to say that dad, he was sick for a long time. He had a lot of health problems, but it's also important for us to say that he struggled with opioid addiction. We will talk very explicitly about that in another episode. That's what you're hearing from us about these weeks is that is the powerlessness that we felt in the face of suicide. Most people feel totally powerless in the face of like sudden death. You feel totally powerless in the face of addiction. You feel powerless. So this season, the first season of the Grease Sisters podcast is about the sense of powerlessness that grief often arrests us with. I definitely felt that uh, on the day that I made my way to dad's hospital bed. It was, I realized on, so Wednesday morning is when I taught throughout the day on Wednesday, kept checking on him. And I learned on Thursday morning through Jenna, Jenna is in healthcare. And so she called the nurse, the attending nurse to dad and was just like in her very Jenna way, like, just tell me the truth. Like what's going on here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, don't, don't give me the, all the medical, whatever, like the runaround, like just tell me medically, like what's happening. I've been to nursing school. I'm an occupational therapist. Just tell me what's happening. And that's when she realized he's dying. If you want to see your dad alive, you need to come now. He called me. I booked a flight that left an hour and 30 minutes after I booked it. It was wild. And made my way to dad's side. Three planes. For me, it took three planes and a rental car. An absolute nightmare of a travel day. But we arrived. And Jenna and I spent the last five hours of dad's life with him. Yeah. Yeah. You call, you know, you called me during that time and so thankful for that. I mean, I, I was not in a space or time or I couldn't even comprehend the idea of, of going. I, I tell people all the time that this is where compound grief really, really yeah. kicks in. I literally did not have the space to first of all, comprehend that anything could happen to dad. And secondly, to, to go attend to that, just, I, I don't think I could have handled it. And I, I don't think my body allowed me or my mind even allowed me to go there. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'll come back to this in another episode. Sure. But stuff, I mean, I've never seen you the way that I saw you in the days before this week. You know, so I mean, we're talking about 
you know, dad dying exactly like one week to the day of, of us arriving to see you. And then we spent Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like you didn't go to sleep till like four or 5 a.m. And it was sort of like sister code. We don't go to sleep till she sleeps. <laughs> and so we, but like you weren't, you couldn't sleep. You weren't sleeping. You weren't eating. You just, I mean, it was just, <laughs> yeah, I felt so deeply what you, I just, your pain was incredibly palpable and gut-wrenching. And it was just like, I want so badly, all of us, we wanted so badly to take your pain away and we couldn't, there was nothing we could do. And so even, yeah, that was, and then to watch you go to his service, it was just like, you were doing all the things, but like, you were not really there. Like who I know you to be, it was like, it was like your body was going through the motions, but you were not really there. (laughs) And so this being like five days later, it just, that there was there no physically, mentally, emotionally, like you could not have made those plane rides and like witnessed our dad's death in that week. It just was not, it would, it's impossible. And so we had dad's funeral and then (laughs) there's still more, there's one more to talk there. There There is talk about, I know there is, I, I recall, you know, having lots of conversations with you. I know that you spoke at dad's funeral, which was the third funeral you had spoken at in roughly six weeks time. Four and a half weeks. Yeah. Oh goodness gracious. Yeah. It, it just was, you know, hearing about his funeral and understanding that I, I gave myself grace that I couldn't be there and attend it. And finally kind of feeling a little bit like I, have had enough and our family has had enough. And as I said, the compound grief story continues because about, I would say 12 to 14 days after dad passed away, I don't, I don't know the exact date, but my grandmother had been remarried to a man named Bill who quickly became grandpa Bill and our family. He was the only grandfather that my children knew and they had spent many years together was suddenly sick and suddenly at hospice. And shortly after he was in hospice, a day or two later, he passed away. Mm. And so obviously this is was one of the third very most important men in my life, besides my husband and my other two stepsons. And um, being the only grandpa that my kids ever knew I was hurting for them additionally as well. Yes. Four people we loved, seven weeks-ish time. So much grief. I think this is a really good time to take a break. Hey family, this is Coach Steph, and we want you to know that we appreciate you. If you wouldn't mind, and especially if you found our podcast helpful, please follow, rate, and or officially subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. This helps us grow and gets the word out to more listeners who really and truly need us. You can also consider supporting us even further by pressing the support button in our Anchor podcast link found in the show notes. 
even $1 a month is helpful for us to continue to bring amazing guests and content to your ears. Thank you so much for listening. Family, we realized this was a lot. It was a lot to hear. It was a lot for us to live through. It's a lot even now to reflect on. We truly appreciate you being witnesses to our story. There is something about being listened to that really helps. There's something about being able to tell your story to someone else and have them say, I am a witness. (laughs) I see your pain. I lament with you. Like, that's horrifying. That shouldn't have happened. That's so unfair. That's heartbreaking. (laughs) You know, there's something to people being witnesses to one another's pains. And I think for me, that's one of my greatest hopes with this podcast, that we will both Coach Steph and I will be witnesses to other people's grief that comes on this podcast and all the different episodes. And that also that you all will feel as you listen that mysteriously we are also witnesses to your pain. Like we hope that you will feel like, oh, wow, I feel so seen. (laughs) Like my grief is real. My grieving is not strange. I am not wildly crazy for experiencing my grieving in this way. I hope that you feel mysteriously that we are witnesses to your grief. Steph, what are your hopes for this podcast? Well, first of all, Angela, I agree with what you said about our appreciation for our listeners listening to our story, because as you will learn from us over these next episodes and seasons, We know that each grief story is completely different, yet so important, and each story deserves to be told. We hope to share lots of stories with you because one of the hopes for this podcast that I have is to really highlight these stories. For me, listening to podcasts was so helpful in the early times of my grief when I lost my son, and and it still is. I would research grief in the podcast library or grief subjects related to how I was feeling that day or on any particular day. I think additionally, our hope, the podcast is to also add to this much needed educational space with our grief journeys. Really, our grief journey started when we were young, when our parents divorced. And I'd like to pull from our experiences as well as discuss the research we found over the years. You know, we we fumbled our way through all of this with tears and heartache, and we so want to find a way to somehow give a bit of relief to others that we so desired in our most excruciating time of grief. And, you know, and we, you know, and I know that we still walk that line of grief daily, and we know that others do too. And what I mean by that line of grief is that there's grief on one side and joy on the other, and that it's possible to feel both of those at the exact same time, and that the grief really never does go away. And so I want to hold every virtual hand that I can and hold an open and honest space for others not to feel alone. Angela, what do you always tell people about loneliness and and why do you like to talk about that when you speak publicly? Yeah, I think 
one of my taglines when I speak. I mean, something that I say often because I really want people to feel at least in the the space that I'm teaching in or speaking in, I want people to feel this and I want people to try to say it to other people as often as possible is you may feel lonely, but you're not alone. And we've really made that the heart of this podcast too, because there is a difference. All of us will experience loneliness at some point in our lives. I think there are ebbs and flows to loneliness for most people, but especially in grief, when you experience grief and when you're in the grieving process, you can feel very lonely because it can feel like you can see other people, but they can't see you. Mm. Yes. Like you can be around other people, but they can't really reach you. They may under, you know, they may know mentally, intellectually understand that something horrible has happened to you, that a beloved pet has died, that a loved one has died, that you've gotten divorced, that you've experienced job crisis or any number, you know, you've just been diagnosed with a terminal disease. They may know that you live with chronic pain, but you're like, you may know that, but you don't really get what I'm going through. You can't empathize with me. You don't really understand how my life has totally shifted, you know, and been changed by this, uh, this thing. And so then that can make us feel very, very lonely. And what we want to say in this podcast is, yes, you may feel lonely. And we are witnesses to that. We accept that. We are not doubting that. And yet we also want to say, it's a paradox, right? You may feel lonely, but you're not alone. Right. And we're not like we you're not alone in what you're going through. We are walking with you. We are holding space with you. And we hope you feel that 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 is that is our greatest aim. Our greatest hope is that you walk away from every episode with us feeling a little bit lighter. You'll always have the grief. It, it, it does not go away when you have had that kind of life shaking thing happen, like something like I just mentioned. That doesn't go away, but you can carry it differently just knowing that other people are walking with you. Yeah, well said, well said, (laughs) for sure. Yeah, well, it's been incredibly meaningful for me and I know I imagine for you, Steph, right, to reflect where we've been Mm -hmm. and where we're going in this season one of the Grief Sisters podcast. We would love to end this episode with some rapid fire goodness, some rapid fire questions. (laughs) We're both going to answer all of them. Right, Steph? I mean, we want to both answer all of them. Yes. Yes. All right. So let's bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So our first question is, are we introverts or extroverts? So Angela, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert all day long. Yeah. All right. I'm an introverted extrovert, which complicates things. But well, you're like an ambivert then. (laughs) Yeah, ambivert. Yeah, no easy answers. Mm -hmm. What is your morning routine? Well, for the most part, it's directly headed to the coffee pot. Yes. And I will tell you, I learned a couple of years ago, something really smart that, that taught me to earn my coffee. And that is to drink 16 ounces of warm water immediately. So I drink that while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew. And that really starts me on the right path to getting my water in. 
Mm-hmm. And most of the time I try to read a little something or listen to a little something. I I have to force myself not to grab my phone and that sort of thing. So that's, in all honesty, that's my start. How about you? Yes. Well, very similarly, my going to the copy pod is the first thing that I do. I get out of bed and I literally roll toward the copy pod. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even walk. You just literally yeah, I just roll. <laughs> roll over there. I crawl. <laughs> I crawl to the copy pod. <laughs> and then I, I turn it on. And then I, while the coffee is brewing, I, similar to you, I earn my coffee, but for me, it's meditation. Mm. I do a for about 10 minutes each morning using the app Insight Timer. Absolutely love it. It's free. I commend it to everyone. I love their guided, there's a million guided meditations and I love starting my day like that. And then grab my coffee and do i i read richard Rohr's morning meditations which integrate thinkers from around the world and it's my spiritual meditation of the day and then i and it often includes scripture reference like for me i'm I'm, my tradition my religious tradition is i'm a christian and then i spend time in prayer and every day monday through friday i have it broke my prayer list broken up into specific things like a prayer for the world and then specific family members or friends you know, Mondays, I pray for people who are trying to heal from something. Wednesdays, I pray for people I know who are grieving, et cetera. So for me, it's, and then I have an app that I do every morning right now. It's called Reframe. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, some other episode as well. So that's for me, like morning coffee, meditation, prayer, reading, and just starting my day from a place of centeredness. That's wonderful. I usually do a little stretching too. But nice. that, that brings me back to, you know, having arthritis in my spine and <laughs> crunchy knees and all. <laughs> it's a, a defense mechanism for not, wa- not you know, walking like Frankenstein or something. <laughs> and you're doing it well. I love it. You're, Thank you. you're aging beautifully. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to ask you this question, but I actually don't know the answer to mine. And that is... <laughs> What is your Enneagram number? I'm a three. I'm a three wing four for those who know the Enneagram. And what that means for people who are not as familiar with Enneagram is that I am a doer. I'm an achiever. I'm a list maker. I love to check things off. I am a go, go, go. A little bit too busy at times kind of person, which is why I have to do the meditation in the mornings. Mm -hmm. And fours, wing fours are deep emotion sort of people. And so pretty emotional person, very open and vulnerable with my feelings and very in tune with the feelings of others. I will say, though, as I get older, I wonder if I should retake the test because I feel like I'm more of a seven these days. But maybe it's just that I want to be a seven. I'm not sure because I don't avoid pain, but I do like to try a lot of different things. So anyways, for people yeah. who know the Enneagram, that's that. So you don't know your Enneagram. I don't. I, I've been more of like, I've done disc personality tests. I've done, I, I don't know, countless 16 personalities. There's so many that I've done for myself and my clients, mm-hmm. but Enneagram has not been one. However, I would mention too, if I could put my coach hat on for a second, for those of y'all out there who have never done a personality test that you know, really digs into how you are, as you said, like take it as later in life or more recently, knowing what type of personality you are really helps you 
in processes like grief and joy and coming to decisions. And it's really important to, to kind of know how you react to things. That's really helpful. Yeah. And all of the tests, like whether it's Strength Finders, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, what's great about them is that you don't, like if you don't resonate with what's being said, then it's probably not you. But really, it's it's the it's not that it's telling you who you are, but it's that in you reading about the different things, like what emerges is, oh, yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> so it's like sort of it's giving you an opportunity to reflect on who you are and how you navigate things and to just be more self-aware. And so it's not that it's going to tell you something you don't know about yourself. It's more going to reveal something that maybe you wanted to sweep under the rug about yourself. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, well, do you know your star sign? I do. I'm a Sagittarius. And again, I'm on the cusp. I'm a Scorpio Sag because I am I was born on November 23rd. So it's, I walk betwixt the two. I got to be honest, for some reason, I thought you were a Scorpio because of the November birthday. But like, I'm just now realizing, like, how is this possible? But at 39 years <laughs> old, almost 40, I am just now realizing that we're both Sagittariuses and now everything makes sense. Everything makes sense. <laughs> No wonder we're so fun. Oh, my God. That's so true. All right. So what is your biggest pet peeve? People not having follow through. Mm. Yeah. I want you to say what you mean. Do what you mean. Mean what you say. Right. Well, you're a, you're a close the loop person. That's what I call someone like you. Like, I'm a loop opener where I'm just like ideas galore. Yeah. And that's why we work so well together because you're like, okay, let's close this loop. Let's let's pick an idea, Stephanie, and close the loop. <laughs> well, and, yeah. And with that means that makes us a good team. That's true. It's true. So one of my biggest pet peeves is when you go to the movie theater and someone close to you is eating popcorn as if their life depended on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I've got to be honest, like. That actually being on, you just reminded me that being on a plane sort of integrates all my deepest pet peeves that are really like, like all the finer things. Mm -hmm. Because like when someone opens a chip bag and they just like, <laughs> the chip, like the crunching and the crinkling of the bag and they just, and they're doing like one at a time, <laughs> you know, that kills me. And then the ice chewing, if you're next to me on a plane and you're chewing ice, like stop right now. Uh, what are you doing? Or just anything that people do on planes where they like take off their shoes and socks and put their feet on things. And then like, you know, just all the stuff or talking super loud, telling everyone their life story. Like so that everyone in every row, five rows before them and after them can hear the, everything that they're saying. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. That's, okay. Yeah. Being on I, a plane is like my worst nightmare, which is unfortunate since I'm on a plane about every a lot. I was going to say you're on a plane a lot. I cannot wait to be on a plane with you again so that I can watch you. <laughs> just watch you float like dining. Exactly. Exactly. I do not know how annoying you are right now. Okay. What's the best compliment you've ever received? Wow. You know, I think when I hear that I'm a good mom. Mm. You know, it's, it's as, it's as guttural as that, honestly, because as a mom, I heard a saying a long time ago that as a mom, you're only as happy as your saddest child. And goodness gracious, we could do a whole episode on that too. But just 
feeling like, again, back to leading someone better than you found them and raising them up. And now I have the pleasure of being a grandma too. <laughs> Seeing your, your kids raise their kids is really cool. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is such, uh, this is a good question. Cause yeah. it, like, what, cause, and what I love about it is that it allows me to, to think about the ways that people have poured their life into me. Mm. You know, how people, because it's so incredible. Like I actually was thinking the other day about how the word encouragement like has courage in it. And so it's like the reason why we, like when someone encourages us, it literally gives us courage. You know, it helps us to live more courageously into who God has created us to be. And so I just, I, you asked, you know, or I asked the question, yeah. I'm like thinking about the question and I'm hearing your answer and I'm just thinking about all the people who have helped me to live courageously. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the best though, that stands out to me is actually on the homepage of my website because one of my former students who then became my graduate assistant, who then has now become a friend, Joy Moten, Joy. And it was so cool. Like she helped me work on my book, The Gravity of Joy as my graduate assistant. And her name is Joy. Mm -hmm. And she like helped me record the book on Audible, sat with me in a booth for like 40 hours, you know. So <laughs> we are now good friends. And um, she, Joy said to me, you know, Angela, you cultivate life-changing experiences for people. Like deep, you, you create space for like life change in your classes and stuff like that. And so just to be able to imagine like for a second through Joy's eyes that I helped to create space for people to experience, um, you know, deep life-changing transformation. Like what? Wow. What? Does that really happen? That's so good. That's so I know, good. It, so whether it's true or not, it made me feel amazing. Oh, it is true. It's absolutely <laughs> true. And you're doing it right now. It's absolutely true. We always end our podcast with asking our guests, what is one way that joy has found you recently? I'm going to let you go first, Angela. What is one way that joy has found you recently? Oh, goodness. I have to, I want to just say that being almost 60 years out from those weeks of hell, that it's with a lot of gratitude that I say that joy has found me a lot recently. <laughs> and that is no small thing. It is a huge thing because. There was a time a few years back and really, you know, throughout my divorce and last year, but I just didn't know if joy was going to make its way to me. And that's the thing, as someone who's a joy scholar, I think it's important for people to know, like, I don't think that we can choose the emotion of joy. We can't just choose joy. We can't just be like, I want to feel joy. So I feel it, you know, that joy is a gift. Joy finds us. I do think we can choose the action of rejoicing. We can choose to rejoice. We can choose to find something good in our lives and rejoice over it. But we cannot choose to just feel joy. But but the what we can live open to it. And I have found that in the previous months, it's been easier and easier for me to live open to joy. And I'm just very, very grateful to that. And one of the ways that joy has found me recently is last two Saturdays ago is I've just been able to hang out with Jenna's kids a lot and our niece and nephew mm -hmm. being able to live really close to them right now it has just been incredible and I 
was watching them. Jenna went on a date with her husband. And so I had the pleasure of being able to hang out with Andy and Roe, who are 11 and 5. And it was just this, we, we were laying in their, they have like this upstairs space where they watch movies and like they just got it turned into like a cool movie space, like kid space. And we were laying in the floor under blankets watching this cartoon movie. And just everything felt right in the world that hour and a half, you know? Yeah. 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 So what about you? Well, you know what? This, this has been hard, finding joy. And I've, I've been so grateful and thankful that over the last few years, I've found it and that it seeks me. I think that that's because, as you said, you know, being open to it and allowing yourself to feel joy, mm -hmm. I think is also important because when you lose someone or a multitude of people or go through a traumatic event or whatever the case is, you almost don't allow yourself to feel joy because there's a guilt that comes with that. Right. And I often say this, like Steph, one of the things I say a lot to people is you don't betray your grief yes. allowing joy in. Yes. And, and you've said that to me multiple times. And I can't tell you how, how profound that is. And so recently my, um, my stepson and his wife, who, who is really my son, I've known him since he was two years old, they moved to Austin. And so it's allowed me to see you more mm -hmm. and to see Jenna more because you all live in the area. But most recently we went to Austin City Limits. And so I got to bring a really close girlfriend of mine who has been strategic in helping me get through my grief process. We were friends before all of this and she's stuck right by my side. So we we went to Austin City Limits, which is a, a music festival. It's fantastic. If no one's ever been, you should go. <laughs> but my daughter, Natalie came, my husband came and I love concerts and it's just a place for me to, I love music. I love absorbing music. And for a long time, I could not listen to music after Mason passed away. It would like mm -hmm. the stories and the music just bugged me. Like, they're like, really, you're complaining about this? Like, I don't know, I couldn't listen. So now I can finally listen to music again and share it with my loved ones and dance and eat good food and feel really free and mm -hmm. have fun mm -hmm. and so and plus I got to see my grandbabies while I was there so just it, it was just a weekend full of absolute joy and so that's where it found me recently very recently actually there is something about music that does open us up to the things that elicit joy, to meaning, to truth, to beauty, to goodness, to our connection with others or with God. And so that makes so much sense. And joy needs room, like joy needs freedom. And so you had that room, you know, there's a playfulness to joy that you were able to experience there. And I love that. I love that for you. Yeah, it was a fun time for sure. If you have experienced loss of any kind, you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck. We get it. That's why we created RISE. It is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. 
It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the RISE journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes. Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com. We have a free gift for you. It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that will be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website for those launches soon. Also, please look for our Grief Sisters Book Club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club. Join us anyway. All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you.